Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. I'm your host, Margaret Winnegar, and I am excited to share a big announcement with you today, which is Rising Tide is officially launching our newsletter. This will come out weekly and will have specially procured content for this amazing community in addition to sharing the latest Rising Tide podcast and so much more. Be sure to go to thisisrisingtide.com to sign up and make sure you subscribe so you can get your weekly dose of inspiration in your inbox. Now, without further ado, let's get to today's incredible guest, Eileen Lee. Eileen is the co-founder of The Lola, a women's club and community in the heart of Atlanta. As the daughter of immigrants, Eileen was raised to avoid risk, but when she lost one of the most important influences in her life, this would set her on a journey she could never have imagined. My parents' beliefs were my beliefs, and that's exactly the way they wanted it. That was by design. The first sense of that not actually being the case was definitely when when I lost my dad, because he was my guiding light. He was my sort of professional role model, any sort of path that I needed to decide to go on in life. He was always there. So when I lost that, it completely rocked my world. And I had to basically really start from scratch and figure out like, who's going to tell me what to do at this point? What do I actually want? And that was my first exercise in life of separating what my parents wanted for me and what I actually wanted for myself. After a six-year career as a corporate management consultant, Eileen went against everything she was taught and did the unthinkable she quit her job with no backup. This seemingly risky decision would launch her career as an entrepreneur where she would co-found not one, but two successful endeavors. Throughout this episode, Eileen candidly shares impactful events and experiences that continue to shape her life and career, including updating beliefs as she learns new information, the importance of tuning into your body, allowing experiences of grief to make us better, the power of creating space and community built for and by women. This is such a beautiful conversation and Eileen radiates such an incredible warmth. I can't wait for you to hear her incredible story and get to know her better. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Eileen. Thanks for having me, Margaret. I'm so excited to have this conversation. We got the opportunity to do kind of a get to know each other a couple of weeks ago. And I left that conversation just chomping at the bit to really get to understand all of your story, because what you've done and what you've built and, and who you are is just so incredible. So I'm really excited personally, but also for everyone listening to get to learn more about you and your journey. I'm excited too. So yeah, can't wait to jump in. Yay. Well, you know, something that's really neat is that I think I knew of your space before I actually got to know you. And so you opened the Lola, which is a female co-working space here in Atlanta, and would love for you to maybe tell everyone a little bit about your beautiful space and what, you know, kind of what your mission and vision is for the Lola. Yeah, sure. So we are a 5,000 square foot space in the heart of Atlanta in Old Fourth Ward. And really the way we got started was my co-founder Martine and I got together and really aligned on our interest in wanting to better support women, particularly professional women. 
unfortunately the workplaces still don't. (laughs) So back in 2018, when we got started full time, it was very much just listening to professional women in Atlanta and hearing what they wanted in a physical space and also community. We learned very quickly that there were amazing virtual women's groups that often met in places like Maggiano's and they were all tired of it. (laughs) And so there was a real opportunity to have a physical space and also just a hub for all these women's groups, women in tech, women in cable TV, women who code to come together and really connect. And we really saw value in connecting cross industry, cross ages, cross race, getting to meet women who you normally wouldn't meet in your day to day. So whether that, you know, is through personal friends and family or in your office space. And yeah, we had some, we hosted some fun focus groups where we did post-it sessions and we really had people dream up high in the sky. What would our physical space look like? And my favorite one was that someone said that we should have the floor feel like pillows because women were always wearing heels and always had to, you know, put on a good face and, and dress up more and, you know, more so than men. And so the Lola should be a space where we could throw our heels off and just, you know, <laughs> treat ourselves to pillows right. and clouds on our feet. So it was fun to hear what people saw in a physical space. And to this day, the vast majority of physical spaces are still designed with men in mind, including the temperature of offices. That's why we're so cold. The weight of doors, prescription medications were overdosing, you know, on many of them because they're often studied on men more so than women. And then, you know, people of color are kind of out of that as well. So we were excited to launch a physical space designed for women by women. We Mm -hmm. got to work with all women business owners, including a female contractor, architect, interior designer, stylist, you name it. And opened up our space in July of 2019. There are a few other smaller spaces that are female forward in Atlanta. But for us, we really wanted to be intentional about not just making a space in a community for our own networks. We wanted to go beyond that. So we partnered with a lot of other women who had different networks than us, mostly women of color. And we've always been really intentional about making sure that we were diverse in race and in age and industry I mentioned So we've been around for a little over three years. We're a little over half women of color in our community and all professional women who have an abundance mindset, meaning they're here to show up to support other women. Yeah. It's such an incredible story. And so it sounds like in the teaming up with Martina was in 2018 and then July of 2019 was when you opened the space. So when in 2018 did y'all start kind of exploring the possibility of doing something? We actually met in 2017 when I was pregnant with my first daughter and Martine had been working in corporate for about 20 years. So she told me she wants to leave. She's going to quit and she wants to start a women's co-working space. And I said, I'm in, let's do it. She said, okay, I'll quit. And, you know, every month she's like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And slowly I became more and more pregnant and realized, oh my goodness, she's not going to quit before I have this baby. And then two weeks after I had our first daughter, she called me up and said, I quit my job finally. (laughs) And she has two kids. So she's like, I get it. Take as much time as you need. And so three months into having a baby, we actually, I had the baby in the carrier never walked down the belt line for more than a few, like 10 minutes, but I, I walked myself to meet her to see a physical space. So we way too early. We didn't have the money or anything, but we wanted to see a space that could be ours. So I remember that I was dripping sweat and my back was killing me. And we were meeting with a broker and he was showing us this space 
like an old medical office that could be ours. So then we kind of backtracked and said, okay, let's <laughs> make sure we do some market research. So in January of 2018, we both kind of joined and started full time. And that's when we spent almost a year, year and a half meeting over 3,500 professional women in Atlanta. And so as we were meeting them, building community, we were also fundraising. And then the construction started in early 2019. And then we were able to launch in July. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I'm sure the question that is on a lot of people's minds, given the pandemic that has been going on, the launch that happened in July of 2019, you're not even a year into this beautiful space. Tell us about how you have navigated this pandemic because the, just the sheer fact that you are still open and in business puts you in another class because so many spaces like this were unable to stay open. So leading up to the pandemic, the pandemic, and then, you know, what, what has allowed you to kind of continue to provide this space? Yeah. I mean, with the way we did it, I will tell you, it was frustrating and it always takes longer to raise money than you think it will. And so during that year and a half that we were talking to, you know, individual angel investors and institutions, I personally was very frustrated because I, you know, we talked to a lot of male investors and a lot of male investors said, you know, this will never work. This is too cutting edge of an idea, even though spaces like these have existed for many, many, many years. And, you know, in the 1920s, when there was a lot of women's clubs and spaces. So in retrospect, as frustrating as that was in the moment, it gave us time and we hosted events at the Hotel Claremont. The Hotel Claremont is a great boutique hotel on Ponce. They opened in July of 2018. They let us use their library and bar for free. We basically squatted there for the better part of a year when they weren't busy because the hotel got busy at night. We hosted over a hundred events and had a a little over a thousand women come through. So we built community prior to even Mm -hmm. our physical space launching. And so when we opened up our doors in July of 2019, we already had 200 paying members. So that we would have never changed. Now, if we talk about and think about expansion, that's the way we would do it. We would make sure that the customers are there and ready to go. And when we're ready to open our doors, everyone just walked from Ponce to North Avenue and it was seamless. The next month we had 300. So being able to have that sort of community already and that loyalty and stickiness Mm -hmm. from women who believed in us from the beginning, who many of them are still with us today, that really helped. And I will say that once March 2020 hit and we shut down for a few months, not knowing when we'd be open. It's those members, those loyal members who made sure that we stayed alive. If it weren't for them, we absolutely would have been one of the casualties. And we have this great collective nationally of women, female forward spaces and co-working spaces that meet like every other month. And we started meeting every week once the pandemic hit just for support and community. And unfortunately, the majority of them have since closed because spaces like us don't really have that much cash on hand to stretch your runway for two plus years. So yeah, we're continuing to figure it out. I mean, as many other companies, we now know that the growth we experienced pre-pandemic and the bustle that our space had pre-pandemic, it's going to look different. Whatever the new normal is, we're still trying to figure out. There's new opportunities for professional women who are you know, starting remote full-time jobs for the first time. So there's new opportunity for us. We just, we need to figure out how to capitalize on all that and make sure that we survive and continue to thrive. Right. 
Right. I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine of coming off of the heels of such tremendous success and then kind of over, you know, seemingly overnight. Cause I think a lot of us were in the camp of like, it's just going to be a few weeks. And, yeah. and then it went on for months. And then even when you were able to reopen the space, I mean, you didn't really touch on that, but like, I can't even imagine just the logistics of having a physical space and trying to keep up with all of the ever evolving standards of safety and, you know, making sure that you were in regulation so that if people did want to come in, I mean, it's just, that's so, so much that you would never think about when you're opening a space like that. And it's like every few months you laugh at your previous, you know, (laughs) self, because I happened to be pregnant with our second daughter when we reopened. And that was when we thought we had to triple disinfect things because we didn't want to spread COVID. And so I had a mask and a shield on my face and was wiping everything down like a crazy woman. And so, you know, and then a few months later, they're like, hey, that's actually not how it spread. <laughs> like, wow, that feels really ridiculous now. <laughs> um, but you just keep evolving. And it feels it is funny how two plus years of that feels kind of like a blip now. Right. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. Just out of curiosity for you, I mean. So we're talking about some pretty major life events. You start a company, you have not one, but two kids over this span of time. And there's a global pandemic. I know I'm sitting here kind of like, oh my gosh, like one of those would be a lot for someone, let alone three. How do you navigate this or like make sure that you are able to continue doing this work and showing up the way you want to show up? Because this is a lot for any person to, to take on. I feel very fortunate because of the work we do, because we're supporting women. Martine and I, when we early on, when we knew what we were building, we knew we were like, if we don't have it together, if we're trying to support women to figure out how to find an optimal work-life integration Mm -hmm. and a support system to help them do that in a way where they feel like they're thriving and not hustling all the time, we need to have our own stuff together. And we both looked at each other like, that's going to be really tricky. (laughs) We need to figure that out. So I will say it's almost like a virtuous cycle of if we're trying to support women, it's a a good check, Mm -hmm. like a self check of, are we embodying that? And I, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't say that we're successful all the time, but it did make the nature of the job way more manageable. And my, my partner in crime is a woman who has two kids who are a few years ahead of me. So you know, having that empathy, you know, bringing my baby to like go see a space. We figured it out together. My first daughter went to a lot of events. We used to host three to five in-person events pre-pandemic. And in retrospect, you know, that was always after school for her. So she was hanging out in the back listening to, you know, an author talk about Gen X women and (laughs) all sorts of things at the age of two and three. So we made it work. (laughs) And then the pandemic, I think, made us all realize that we had to slow down. So now, you know, my second daughter did not do any of that stuff. And she's already 18 months. So I feel fortunate that the nature of the job and the pandemic allowed me to slow down and be more present. I don't know, outside of those two things, I think I would have just been working crazy because my default tends to be a workaholic and probably not being as present as I could be. So as crazy as it does sound in the climate that we're in, it feels like the most manageable job mm-hmm. and life I've had, if that makes sense. And I'm yes. coming from New York and I started a, a company there and killed myself. So <laughs> the, I, I guess like perspective wise for me personally, this feels really manageable. 
And I, I get to try to live and breathe what we're trying to put out there to better support women. Right. It does make so much sense. And I think what we are largely learning because there's more talk about this and there's becoming more research around it is that kind of the ways that have been considered productive for work are not necessarily the best way to kind of get the most out of people. And there is something to be said for slowing down or pausing or even just this having like removing that concern of like, what will people think if I bring my baby, right? Like that, that mental yeah. tax, that something like that takes not eliminating that and freeing up that energy to go towards something else. I mean, that can't be underestimated. So you said something and I, I want to, I want to hear about it. You talked about launching a company in New York. Yes. So in 2011, I started a national nonprofit called Venture for America, and it was really to tackle the problem, especially at the time, trying to attract more talented recent graduates to get into entrepreneurship because the majority, including myself out of college, go into finance, consulting, law, teach for America, and I think grad school for the wrong reasons. Mm. And out of college, I went into consulting for the wrong reasons and spent slash wasted <laughs> my first six years there. So that's where I first cut my teeth on entrepreneurship and learned how to build a business. Also built a community, which was funny because that was more of like a second thought or an afterthought. But a few years into Venture for America, and I was the COO there, I kind of stood back and I looked at the community we built. And, you know, we had 22 year olds out of college signing up to spend two years with us. And they put their trust in us and said, okay, what do we do now? And then you look back and a few years later, there were a couple hundred of them. And it was amazing. Like the power of the community blew my mind. And that's when it hit me. I'm like, oh my God, like this is the work. This is something really special. And so when I left that company and it's still alive and well today under new leadership, we recently celebrated our 10 year anniversary. Yeah, I think I was excited to start a new company, knew I wanted to start a family was also moving to Atlanta from New York, but did not at first intend to do something community focused, kind of fell into it. And then now 11 years later, I'm realizing, okay, I, I kind of really enjoy this community building aspect. <laughs> right, right. And so like, you're realizing that that's a really important theme for you, something that's really important to have as part of your life. Let me ask you this, because you said it, it, it like nearly destroyed you. So what was different about starting this company that, you know, maybe helped inform how you did things with the Lola? Well, I was, you know, in my late twenties, when I started, I was dating my now husband, we got married right at the beginning. And I, I honestly blacked out with the wedding planning because it was so busy, you know, actually during this gigantic gala for our company. So we're focused on that than our wedding. And I remember my husband, because I worked all hours, I didn't have any time for him. He made me admit at one point, he was like, here's the priority list. It's Venture for America and then me. And and he like was just like, just admit it. And finally I did. He said, okay. And I don't know, that like really stuck with me. He said, he's it's okay. He was incredibly supportive. He actually tried to move us to DC for a great job for him and realized this was such a one of a kind opportunity for me. So he moved back and spent more time in New York, even though he was ready to leave. So yeah, I mean, I, I worked a lot. I didn't really, everything else kind of fell to the wayside. And then we found ourselves, you know, in our mid thirties saying, Hey, like, didn't we want to start a family? <laughs> we uh -huh. should do that. 
so I think I just knew there had to be a better way. And, you know, I went into it worried because again, I, I like working. I've mm-hmm. always had a sense that even if I had kids that I'd still want to continue working. So it was just uh, going into it, wanting to find the right business partner. My last business partner was a man. He also had kids, but I think had a different perspective with work-life balance. So yeah, <laughs> I think it was really important for me to find the right business partner who understood that and knew that that was really important to me. And, and yeah, it worked. So I'm really curious because now, I mean, we can consider you a serial entrepreneur. Did you have, like, was this something that you thought about growing up? Like, did you see yourself starting a company or like, how did you come to this? Never. If anything, everything, you know, in my parents' power, the way they raised me was to not do this. Both my parents immigrated from South Korea in the seventies. My dad was a surgeon against his will. He wanted to become a priest, but again, very strict, typical tiger parents said, no, you're going to be a doctor. So he became a doctor, did his residency here. And, you know, we live and grew up in New York. So they raised us to be incredibly risk adverse, just wanted me to be a doctor. And then when I said I didn't want to be a doctor, they just wanted me to marry a Korean doctor (laughs) um, to keep it in the family. So My dad unfortunately passed when I graduated college, but when I told my mom that I was so burnt out from management consulting, I traveled full time, worked 20 hours a day, I told her I was quitting and, you know, they're like, cool, what do you have lined up then? Right. That's great. So where's your stability coming from? (laughs) And I said, I can't even think about what is next because it's taking over my life. They won't allow me to think of going to grad school or anything else. I just need time and space. And so she was so disappointed in me and, you know, wasn't financially the smartest thing. I burned through my savings quite quickly living in New York City and having to pay through rent and everything. So I was freaking out a little bit, but I had a great support system. My boyfriend and Matt, now my husband, and then serendipitously through friends, met my business partner. And it was super risky, but the person who made it seem okay for me to take the leap was my husband who said, if you lose all your money and can't move out of your apartment, like you can come live with me. Like I'll support you. And I, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I've never had anyone make that kind of offer. And so to this day, I definitely recommend to entrepreneurs to have that nice balance. If you're looking for a partner or spouse, if you are going to see the risk taker, ideally you would have a very risk adverse spouse and partner, which I do. <laughs> and, you know, it, it kind of ebbs and flows, but that was the first leap. I was terrified. There were so many times where I was on highs and then lows crying on the couch at night. But after the the six years of building that company, that was it. I walked away from that experience knowing I wanted to to keep doing it. Okay. So there's like multiple things I want to dig into. I'll start with the last thing you said. You mentioned part of the reason was wanting to start a family. You've built this thing for six years and it's still, you know, just celebrated its 10 year anniversary. How did you come to the decision to, to leave this thing that you had built? Oh, that's hard. And people always compare starting a company with having a baby and it absolutely, you pour your heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears into it. So tearing yourself away from it does feel like tearing yourself away from something that you raised and birthed. That was a really hard decision personally for me. And 
I honestly thought I would be there forever. I would mm. joke around like, you're going to have to pry my dead body from here. because <laughs> like, I love what we built. I was so proud of the impact we were making, but it's something that I learned and I'm still learning, you know, through life about myself that I grew up in a very traditional, you know, strict Asian household and they taught me never to quit. And I stay at things too long professionally because of that. And I think I stayed too long where I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't learning and growing as a professional. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for my team and the company. You know, at the time, my husband, he's in marketing. He got a, a really great sort of his dream job offer in Atlanta. And it was somewhat convenient because it was like, okay, we're going to move out of New York. This is a good way to say goodbye and transition out. But it was it was one of the hardest decisions I had to make. Never did I think, yeah, I would leave that soon. And that experience is one of the most formidable ones I know I will have professionally. I know hopefully I have, you know, half of my professional life done and then the other half to look forward to. But I am doubtful that I will have that kind of experience. I've, you know, I've built so many great friendships through building that team and getting to grow and create the community and culture within the internal team, as well as the fellowship community. Um, I get to go to some so many of their weddings and celebrations now, which is great. But yeah, it was, I mean, it made it even harder because I loved somehow we built this, you know, ragtag team of amazing people. But if anything, in retrospect and reflecting and knowing about myself, I need to do what's best for me. And what's best for me oftentimes is probably what's best for the team and the company. Because I would have been this like old crotchety, like just cranky person of like, you know, you need fresh energy and experience and all the things to continue to to build and grow a business and take it where it's at. You don't need a curmudgeon person being like, that's not how we do it. And I totally would have been that person. <laughs> so there's something else that you had, you've mentioned a couple of times now, and I want, I think this is a good time to talk about it as far as it seems like being raised, having parents who were immigrants who from South Korea, you know, you talked about being raised in a household that was very much risk averse and that this seems like it has really, it played, you know, it, it played a big part in staying places longer than you should have. I'd love if you would tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of your experience as being the the daughter of immigrants, but then also how you've maybe updated some beliefs over time that maybe things that things that were true, you know, maybe as you've learned and evolved, like you're realizing maybe those those aren't actual truths and you've updated your beliefs as you've grown. Like, I'd love for you to tell us more about this. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know my parents' beliefs were my beliefs and that's exactly the way they wanted it. That was by design. And it was so typical. Like they wanted me to get straight A's, you know, if it was an A, how come it wasn't an A plus? They wanted me to go to Harvard, be a doctor, all the things. And that's what I wanted too, or that's what I thought. The first sense of that not actually being the case was definitely when my dad, when I lost my dad, because he was my guiding light. He was my sort of professional role model, any sort of path that I needed to decide to go on in life, you know, whether it's going, what college I should go to or decisions I should make, he was always there. So when I lost that, it completely rocked my world. And I had to basically really start from scratch and figure out like, where am I, who's going to tell me what to do at this point? What do I actually want? And that was my first exercise in life of separating what my parents wanted for me and what I actually wanted for myself. And it was a hard, long journey, years and years of really trying to understand what I truly wanted, because I don't think I ever separated myself from it. 
as shitty as grief is, I'm thankful for that because I think it made me more self-aware and more attuned to who I am and made me a better person. And also now that I have two kids, hopefully a better parent because I hopefully am more attuned to what, who they are as individuals. And oftentimes I think in Asian cultures, the individual is not lifted up. It's the collective. So very much my parents raised my brother and I the same way and expected us to do the same things and sort of achieve the same ways that they did. So again, the individuality and understanding yourself was a huge thing in my 20s that I went through. And, you know, when I told my mom that I was putting consulting and that I was unemployed and she was just like, oh my goodness, like, I don't know what to tell my, my you know, my relatives and my friends, I can't tell them about this. Right. That's very much another stigma of like being able to, what am I going to say to them about it? And then when I told her I was starting a company, I remember I brought, I like met her at a Starbucks. I don't know why, maybe I wanted like mutual ground. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to get another job. <laughs> I'm going to start this company and like basically not make any money until the foreseeable. And I'll never forget. She just like closed her eyes and looked at me and said, I don't like, this is not how we raised you. We did not raise you to be this dangerous. And she meant risky, but you know, uh, lost in translation. She's like, we just, I don't understand. Like, where did we go wrong? And so that definitely was the beginning of her not understanding my professional career. And it's still, it's funny, again, immigrant, different culture, but she didn't understand what I do. And then I started a second company at this point. She's like, are you having babies? That's all I care about. <laughs> so, you know, again, the gender sort of yeah. difference in that. So she's less concerned about what I do professionally now. It's more, are my grandkids, you know, there for me? And so, yeah, it's been really interesting. I think it's, it's fascinating your upbringing and kind of mm-hmm. how that shapes your sort of future, not just like how you are as a parent, but also professionally what you do and how you kind of work through all that. Oh my gosh, for sure. Well, and even like prioritizing the collective over the individual. I mean, talk about like the clash of like Eastern and Western cultures. And so, you know, coming from very Eastern kind of cultures to coming into the United States, which is all about the individual. And, you know, it's like, what a difficult kind of tension, you know, within your own household of like during the day, I'm around all these people that operate in this way. And then when I'm at home, I have to be very, very different. And so kind of having to flip almost, you know, depending on who you're with, like, like that would be that would feel like whiplash, I'm sure, in some ways. Definitely. <laughs> I yeah. enjoy seeing and understanding and learning my kids' individual personalities. It's just, I think I have such a appreciation for it. So I think mm-hmm. that's like in a good way because that wasn't a thing in my house. So when I see how different they are and how can we sort of support and cultivate that mm-hmm. personality and those char- characteristics coming out, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think to your point too, I mean, despite it coming from a very sad place and grief filled place of losing your father, like how that really sets you on a very meaningful journey to like truly understand for the first time who you were. And even, I mean, even when you made the comment of like, what am I supposed to think about things? I mean, like, that's so real of like, for so long there, you know, there was somebody who you consulted on every decision and like to have to now make those decisions for yourself you know, that can feel, that doesn't feel liberating at first. It feels very scary. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) All all, all of that. I I literally, I was just having a conversation with someone about like, 
grief and stress are real, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, but it it can turn into a good thing for sure. You know, that's what I learned and started my journey on sort of self-discovery. I also, um, my thyroid stopped working because I was in such shock too. So life, there's you crazy curveballs, but healthy now and (laughs) talking about it. Yeah. Well, it's such a, I mean, it's such a great call out. And I think it wasn't until I read the book burnout, like it was the first time where I, like, I didn't realize that stress is like a, it's a biological response. And so stress like will manifest in your body. And it's why people get physically sick. It's why our thyroid shut down is like when there's too much stress and we're not, they call it completing the stress cycle then, you know, that these are some of the byproducts that can happen because it, it's an actual physical response. Oh my gosh. How long did that happen for? Oh, it was pretty immediate. I mean, my dad had a long battle with stomach cancer. So he was in and out of hospitals for about two years. It was my second semester, senior year of college. So it was supposed to be, oh you know, the most carefree days. And in retrospect, I'm like, man, was I naive and selfish then, but, you know, going through that and, it was like this pull of me wanting to do all the milestones that you hit. And I can't imagine what kids during the pandemic, cause they lost a lot of those things, but also then spending time with my dad and he was again in and out of hospitals, but we thought, yeah, it was a roller coaster of emotions thinking that there was a miracle that he was getting better. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it turned and he passed. So that I think itself was so much shock to my body and I had zero health problems leading up to that. So it took a while to figure out what it was. I mean, because it does, once your thyroid stops functioning, you have fatigue, which leads to depression, which is normal stuff that happens if you've lost a loved one. I was just feeling really, really down and, and, you know, definitely hit me the hardest in my family. And then on top of that, the health issues. So it took months and months and months to finally figure out like, oh my, oh, this stopped working. So you have to take medicine now. Gosh. I mean, oh, that's, you know, an interesting situation and in that like how it was manifesting could easily have been just like, oh, you're, she's, she's dealing with grief. She's going through the grief, you know, process. But then was there something that made you realize like this is there, there's something bigger going on here to like actually seek out answers? Because I, I could, I could imagine that being something of like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just have more energy or not be so tired? Or like, I've never been like this. Like it, it, what helped you kind of start to seek out answers and really trying to get a medical answer to what was going on. I will say at that time, it was one of the darker moments and mainly because I didn't have a support system and I had never asked for help. Mm. So, Mm. you know, I feel like that's a muscle if you're not encouraged or raised that way to really work and and still working on it. (laughs) Um, I think women oftentimes are are worse at asking for help and articulating and sharing. So I really kept it to myself for a really long time. And I was a consultant traveling full time. So I was by myself for the most part. But I think, yeah, once I realized I had gained a lot of weight very quickly and was just eating, you know, I was trying to change my diet. I was doing all these things. So I think ultimately my body was telling me, okay, this is, this feels really bizarre and different. And yes, I'm probably depressed, but something else might be going on. So I remember I went to my primary doctor who was the friend of my dad, just like in tears. Mm. And he said, okay, like, let's do a bunch of tests. And and so we did. And finally he said, okay, you're, you're that like, they did a ultrasound, I think. And realized it had stopped functioning. So it was the first time, yeah, that, that stress really impacted me physically and 
always a good reminder to listen to your body and get mm-hmm. yourself checked out and all the things because stress really is a scary, a scary thing. I appreciate you sharing that because it is asking for help is definitely it is a muscle and it is something that can be really difficult to do. And then even just being willing to listen to your body and not diminishing me like, oh, it's probably nothing. Like I'm making a big deal out of nothing. You know, that's unfortunately, I think that happens more than not. And so I think just calling out that idea of like really tuning in to what your body is trying to tell you, it's very, it's, it's telling you something for a reason. So I, I, I'm glad that that, you know, you got answers and were able to move past that. And that, you know, is, is now something that you can reflect back on has probably been a really powerful lesson that has helped you again, as you talk about, like, even just how you've leveraged all of these learnings as you've navigated the Lola and the pandemic and yeah, you know, and I see my daughter listening to her body and kind of going, Oh, I don't think I want to do that. Or I'm, you know, I think I've, I need a break. And it fascinates me because I'm like, holy cow, I didn't really, I wasn't attuned to that until my thirties Like, and you're five years old. This is amazing. Right. Wow. <laughs> this is great. Isn't that the hope? You know, it's like, we, we, we see that progress. Sometimes it's going to happen. It happens for us, but maybe you know, part of the progress is it happens much earlier for the next generation. Yeah. Oh. Gosh, I wanted to come back. There was one other thing that you've mentioned a couple of times that I wanted to come back to and hear more about, which was talking about uh, working and consulting. And, you know, you made the comment that it had like you, you know, you spent far too long there and um, had gone into it for the wrong reasons. And so I'd love for you to tell us more about how did you end up at Accenture working in consulting? And then, you know, tell us a little bit more about what you meant about like going into it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And again, this goes back to like not knowing and not knowing what I wanted. And maybe, you know, again, having parents who I didn't really talk about work stuff with, but I had no idea what I wanted to do in life. Once I realized I didn't want to become a doctor like my dad, I really had no direction, guidance, advisors, you know, helpers, supporters. Growing up in New York and going to college in New York, it was like, okay, so if you want to, if you don't want to do medicine or law, it's business and everyone's in finance. And I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get an interview. I mean, it was really obvious. I knew I had no idea what I was talking about. And so the other options seem to be, you know, when you go to career services, consulting and consulting still just like such amorphous, you know, broad catch all of things. And <laughs> to be totally honest, I fumbled through all those interviews and Accenture was the only one that hired me. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. They said I would be a generalist. I said, that sounds great. It sounds like I just need work experience. And then my first day, they said, I'm going to be in this really specific, highly technical area. And I remember I went to HR and I'm like, this is a mistake. Like I can barely turn my computer on. And they, you know, they said, oh, we switched it up and we're trying to have people specialize in things. Just give it a try and let us know what you think. And I stayed in that group. It was an SAP technology group. And, you know, the people there were really hardcore and aggressive with projects and selling things and working crazy hours and partying really hard. So I just fell into it. And I was on my way to fast tracking, becoming partner. I found the right people to sponsors to help me there, but there are no women at the top. It's again, you travel four or five days a week. Sometimes you spend the weekend working. 
there were no women at the top. And if they were there, they didn't have families and it's not sustainable in any way. In my 20s, I think it's great. And I say I stayed in for too long because the average tenure, I think, is about two years. It's probably shorter. But I started with a group of recent grads. There was about maybe 15 or 20 of us. And two years in, the majority left. And then four years in, it was me and these two people that we knew were going to be lifers. And I remember gasping like, oh, gosh, like that can't, that's not me. And everyone <laughs> else, too, was like, oh, we didn't think you were a lifer, but I guess you are. And so it got to the point where, again, it was typical things, politics, bureaucracy, and I finally left. And I tried to leave in 2008. And then the recession hit. So I tried to keep my head down for another year. And that's when I, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Okay. So it sounds like, like early on kind of getting in and, and like bought into like the mindset. So was it not seeing female role models, leaders within the company? Was that kind of the first inkling of like, not going to stay here? Or was there something else that you're like, no, I I'm not interested in pursuing this long-term? You know, at first, because that was my first work experience, I didn't have any of that. I thought, oh, I'm so lucky to have met people who are advocating for me to continue working crazy hours to, you know, make this partner title that I think I want or, you know, I should want. The women who I did meet, they would tell me that it's really hard for women, but obviously supported me in what I wanted to do. You know, as much as I would like to say that it was my choice, it was a series of events that made me leave. And it was, I was on a project with a male manager who just, for whatever reason, had it out for me because I stood up for these analysts that he was yelling at. And I was like, hey, that's not cool. Like, we're trying to do our best here. And then he made it his job to ensure that I didn't get promoted early, which he was successful with. And that just kind of spun me down on this trajectory where I really, I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, I asked for a leave. My grandmother, who I was really close with in New York, she wasn't doing well. And, you know, I was like, this is a great reason to just spend more time with her and kind of figure out what I want to do. So I requested to have a leave of absence. If you spend three years in consulting at the time, you could take a three month unpaid leave. So I I put that request in and I got a follow-up call from my manager and he asked me if my grandmother was on her deathbed and I said, no. So they denied the request. And so like these small things that corporate and, and, you know, seem to kind of have you in shackles, it started coming up and, you know, got to the point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. And I was in Amsterdam on a project rounding out my tenure there. And I remember <laughs> it just got escalated pretty quickly to like the head of HR in Europe somewhere. And they called me and they wanted to make sure I wasn't going to sue <laughs> because it's just, you know, and, and in retrospect, that definitely has shaped how I manage and create paid support for, for this kind of stuff. I think it shouldn't have to be the case where you only take work off because you're family member or loved one is on their deathbed. Like, and I've always been the manager. If someone says someone's sick, I'm like, go, go now. Don't worry about anything. Nothing is more important than this. Just go because I firsthand experienced, you know, just total ridiculousness because everyone's so hyper-focused on doing the thing, you know, to make the money for the client who's already making billions of dollars a year. So 
I think that was my first experience in corporate and also doing things that just, they don't make an impact. They're not meaningful. So many of the things I was doing was going to be scrapped in six months. Like, what's the point of all of this? So it started me on the path of kind of questioning all that stuff. Wow. You know, I, again, I think another example of like at the time, something that was, I'm sure very frustrating, especially the early stage of having a boss that started, you know, kind of gunning for you, but that being such a great thing is serving as a forcing function to get you out of an environment that was just so misaligned with who you are, you know, but not knowing any better, how would you know any better that, you know, that, you know, in some ways, like, thankfully, something like that, something strong enough like that happened. And then the, you know, the follow on behaviors that made it so that you didn't maybe stay even longer than you would have, or than you Um, did. Absolutely. It's, you know, you can, the perspective of kind of it happening to me, you know, it made me angry and it got to me, I was emotional for it for years and years and years. But now I'm like, thank goodness for that guy, because if it weren't for him, I might still be working there. But at the time, I thought I did the right thing. And even my mentors and advisors on those promotion calls, I was like, there's got to be something you can do. I have a stellar record aside from this one manager. And all I got was, you should have just kept your mouth shut. Why did you do that? And so, you know, it's all the things that work out in the end. And I'm, I'm, I am a firm believer that things happen for a reason. But of course, in the moment, as much as those things have, again, in the moment happened to me, I've learned from it, I've grown from it. So ideally, I, I will make, hopefully I will make choices that I choose versus other people choosing for me. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think you've described several of those things throughout this conversation of, you know, taking these, these lessons, these hard lessons, but, you know, really kind of in some ways paying it forward. I mean, whether it's, you know, allowing your precious little girls to be these very individual, you know, little children that are going to grow into beautiful women, or, you know, even for people who worked for you at the time, but even now forward of like how that informs how you lead and, you know, kind of the way that you treat people that you work with and who work for you. I mean, I think there's you know, you've really turned those experiences and those lessons into things that have, you know, created better environments for other people around you, which again, I think is such a, a marker of such a, a wonderful person is like you, you could have let those harden you. And instead you've, you've taken from them the value that they could offer and turned it into something better. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you spend so much of your, so many of your waking hours in life at work with the people, your colleagues and, you know, coworkers, you might as well try to make it as enjoyable as possible. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Isn't that so true? Well, you know, I think there's one riddle that I, I maybe haven't unpacked yet with you, which is you leave Accenture. I, we now understand why you said you were so burnt out. I mean, goodness gracious, like pouring everything out to take care of your team, being in an environment that was just in horrible conflict with who you are as a person and the values and the integrity that you have. So that all makes sense. And then, you know, you, you leave without knowing what your next step is. Will you help us get to from there to like, I mean, not even what, three months later, you're launching venture for America. So will you tell us about kind of the transition from 
leaving Accenture to then three months later launching the company? Oh gosh, I'm trying. I'm like, that feels like an eternity ago. (laughs) Again, I had no direction or idea what I wanted to do. And it was serendipitous. I was at a brunch and my friend's boyfriend at the time was talking about this business idea. And at first I didn't hear him because I was too busy refilling my mimosas in the kitchen. And then I came back in and like days went by and someone said, yeah, he's had this great idea. Didn't you, you were there. You heard it. I was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. So it took some time. And then my friend, the mutual friend, she had the sort of intuition to say, hey, I think you would work really well together. And so I met up with her and her her boyfriend at the time. I heard the pitch and the idea was so amazing in the gap and the problem it was solving. I thought was, I was convinced that it would work. The conviction I had at the time being so naive, having had zero experience starting a company or even knowing the first thing about it. I remember reminding myself of that when I moved to Atlanta, knowing I wanted to start another company. My hope was I need to find an idea and a person I can do it with that I will have just as much conviction. And I was very aware that I was also more naive. (laughs) you know, that my previous self was more naive. So I was hoping that I, I, that conviction part could stay, but yeah, hopefully I was less naive to jump into something that (laughs) was a little bit foolish or or whatnot. Right. Right. Well, I mean, but again, and we'll kind of keep beating the drum of like, you know, every time it's valuable, valuable lessons learned that applied in the future. And, you know, we talked about, I got to hear you describe that, you know, kind of how you took what you learned is like jumping in there into how you went about even figuring out that the Lola was going to even like, you know, that, that like running a co-working space, like that was never originally the plan. It was always, I just want to start a company. So I would love if you would tell us a little bit about you moved to Atlanta, you have it on your heart to start another company. What's the process that you go through before you meet Martine? I mean, there was lots that happened before you ever met her. How did you kind of like, I'd love, I'd love for you to tell everyone about that process of like purely the concept was I want to have a business. (laughs) Was there anything more? And then how did you go about figuring out what it would be? Yeah. So the best advice I got was from a board member of Venture for America. I told him, after he knew I was leaving, I said, you know, I'm also moving for the first time in my life and know I want to start another company. What do I do? What's the best advice you can give me? And he was, he's a serial entrepreneur as well. And he just said to me, have as many coffees as you can, you know, while I was still in New York and when I get to Atlanta and get better and better at articulating what you want to do, whether that's like a job or a business or whatever, And keep putting it out there. And again, like as a woman, I think that's a a lot harder from like a confidence and just putting yourself out there standpoint. But he said, keep doing it and it'll come back to you because the more you articulate it and the better you get at articulating it, there's going to be someone who is on the other end and will remember you. We'll be in another meeting or at like a baseball game and someone will say something and they'll be like, oh, you've got to meet Eileen. So I did just that and it was very enjoyable. If anything, I explored many different ideas. I was less about the idea. Again, it was more about, do I have the conviction of the gap that this idea is filling? So I explored um, business ideas in biotech and reached out to some pretty like accomplished professors in the microbiome in New York City. And I remember 
it was a fun kind of challenge. I remember sitting down with this expert and he looked at me like, why are we talking again? Like, why would I talk to someone like you? You, your, our backgrounds don't overlap whatsoever. And I was like, that's the incredible part. And like, I really enjoyed meeting with him. I don't know if he shared that, but just getting to, you know, learn you're in the learning seat. I've never been a good student in a classroom, but from like a one-on-one conversation, just learning about people's experiences and journeys, similar to, to, you know, what you do on a regular basis, mm-hmm. I, it just helped me figure out. And, and I, I give this advice to, you know, younger people in school, just like learn and figure out what people do day to day, right? It's less about the like, romanticized idea of what it's like to be a scientist or whatever like what do they actually do day to day and like what can you learn from them and if that sounds like something you want to do then try to shadow them or whatnot so I had so many coffees with investors and other entrepreneurs and folks and I went down the paths and finally met Martine and she said I want to start something in the women's space and I said I love that and you know next thing we know it we decide to to start the Lola but that was through so many coffees I had until someone said, you've got to meet my friend, Martine. She's interested in doing this. And I like aggressively followed up with her. And at the time, Martine, I'll tell you this, her friend made it seem like she was like turning people away left and right who wanted to be her co-founder. So I was like, I have to get in front of her. <laughs> so I think it's just capitalizing on on conversations and opportunities and always kind of networking and and meeting people regardless of like what point you are in your career. Oh my gosh. I I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think that's so, so neat how like that openness of being willing to let it kind of take, you know, take whatever shape it was meant to take and kind of trusting that like the answer would reveal itself. And as you continue to have these conversations, giving yourself the chance to really start to refine it. And then, you know, it proved very fruitful because of everything that has come as a result of it. So I just thank you for sharing that. Cause when, when we talked about that before, I was like, this is, this is so neat. And again, it's so, it's fun to see that streak in you of like just your curiosity about people and your interest in people. And it's a strength, you know, I think that that curiosity in people is, is it's, it's a really cool thing about you. So, and I know it sounds like you may have answered the question that I always ask at the end of these, um, but you know, you can either punt and say that was it, or, you know, if there is something that you have learned on your journey up until this point or advice that has served you really well in your career, you know, if you want people, no matter what, this is the thing I want, you want them to take away. What would you say that is? I think you just said it. I mean, some of the the things I already mentioned definitely are some points of advice I'd, I'd love to share, but also always be curious mm. because that curiosity has gotten me very far. And again, it's not my default nature. I wasn't brought up that way, but it has served me well as an adult and especially as a community builder, because anytime we assume this is what our community needs or this is what our members mm-hmm. want, we stop ourselves and say, why don't we ask them? And time and time again, the response that you get, it always surprises me or it'll never cease to surprise me in the way that we think one thing and then they tell us something else. So that curiosity of like, oh, well, what are they actually thinking in this moment of time in this crazy world that we're in? It's always listening and being curious as to, to what your audience or what other people think and what you'll learn from that. 
Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point. And I, one of my favorite things that I used to always say as a sales leader, especially usually I would say when somebody would be spiraling, like a manager or a rep would be spiraling. It's like, do you think, or do you know? And if, if, all oh. you, if you, if all you have is that you think, then go, go get the answer. Let's ground, let's ground oh, this. Oh, I love point. that. You know, and, and I love that. Cause the other thing I used to always say is like assumptions kill all deals. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I love that idea of like, if you catch yourself assuming whether that's for yourself personally, right. I mean, how many stories do we tell ourselves where we're making assumptions about what somebody thinks or yeah. right. Like, I just think that's such a great thing of like coming from a place of curiosity and seeking to understand what an incredibly valuable thing to give people. And I really, I really appreciate it. And then that is very near and dear to my heart and something yeah. I I've always felt very passionately about. So, Oh, Eileen, this has been such a treat. I am so grateful for you and I, what you're doing for women in Atlanta and I, having been at your space and felt the energy. I mean, it really is magical and special. And I'm so grateful that you have found ways and you've built such a loyal community that has allowed it to stay in business because it is such a valuable, a valuable space. And uh, I know it means a lot to so many. So thank you for, for being you and thank you for being on the Rising Tide podcast. Yay. Thanks for having me. And thank you for creating a platform for women to share their stories. And I wasn't expecting you to go as far back as we did, but thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Oh, this has been great. It was such a privilege to have this conversation. And I love how Eileen role models this ability to give yourself permission to change, to update your beliefs as you learn new information and understand the importance of having a strong foundation so that she could truly lead the way for others to follow. If you want to connect with Eileen, please be sure to reach out and let her know the impact of the podcast. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review wherever you're listening. And I want to say a big thank you to our incredible podcast editor, Josh Reedford, for the work that he does behind the scenes to make these sound spectacular. And last but not least, thank you to this incredible community for being here, for tuning in, and for continuing to strive for more. Until next week, keep rising. <laughs>